welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Novik Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Ovori. Today, we are talking about one of the hot topics of the moment, and that is AI. Artificial intelligence seems to rule everything around us at this moment in time. Can't avoid it. Microsoft incorporating ChatGPT into its Bing search, OpenAI valued at 10 billion, everything from text, photos, music, and of course, college writing assignments are being disrupted by AI. Uh, the latest Y Combinator batch, um, I've been told, has no fewer than 130 startups that are leveraging AI in some way, shape, or form. And honestly, I can be cynical sometimes on this pod, but I really believe we may be at one of those moments in time where this technology, AI, is, air quotes, good enough to significantly improve a variety of use cases that we have up until this point relied on, you know, human brute force, uh, manual labor, essentially, to solve. Uh, so the question is, is Skynet finally here? And are we welcoming our intelligent robot overlords uh, into, into our world, into our lives in a more meaningful way? So our guest today uh, is going to help us unpack that question and answer some of these, uh, these concerns. Um, he has had a front row seat to the AI revolution for many, many years now, not just with his latest uh, company. Um, and he is tackling a problem that we as gamers have had for a very long time now, which is stupid NPCs. Uh, I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, and I'm going to let our guest talk very much to, to uh, the, the nuance here. Uh, but for far too long, we as gamers have suffered uh, NPCs that are walking into walls, running around in circles, uh, getting out of cover when they really shouldn't, when there's a gunfight going on, and of course, repeating the same dialogue over and over and over again uh, with no personality whatsoever. So our guest today is at least starting out by trying to solve this problem, uh, among other things. Uh, our guest today is Kylan Gibbs. Uh, he's the co-founder and the chief product officer of a company called inworld.ai. Uh, it is a company that is... Uh, dedicated to solving this problem of stupid NPCs uh, using AI in particular. And they're not messing around. They have raised $70 million to do so in just the two years of, of their existence, uh, including from some very interesting investors, which we're going to be talking about uh, in a little bit. Um, so I just want to say a huge welcome to Kylan Gibbs. Thank you for being on the pod. Yeah, thank you so much, Nico. Really excited to be here. I'm, uh, you know, I, I love, I love engaging with gamers and gaming audiences of developers and players. So, yeah, really excited to dig in here. I think that AI, as you say, is at the top of everyone's minds, and I think it's trickling into the minds of gamers as well as everybody's thinking, how will this actually change the uh, the world of gaming and virtual worlds more generally? So, yeah, it's it's an exciting time. Absolutely, absolutely. And many, many questions around that. We're going to get into it in a second. Um, but first, if uh, our listeners will, and, and you as well, Kyle, will indulge me just for a, a moment longer. Uh, the reason he is actually on the pod today is uh, I was watching, for the second time with my kids, uh, the movie Free Guy, which is the 2021 uh, movie starring Ryan Reynolds, who is playing an NPC in an open world game. Uh, he achieves some kind of consciousness and he leads what is essentially an NPC uprising uh, against the evil developers of the game 
and putting it into the hands of the rightful good developers who originally created the the, the algorithms that power his consciousness. And, and by the way, listeners, if you haven't seen Free Guy, it's a really fun movie. It's highly relevant to this topic. Um, it is remarkable how art sometimes imitates life. Life imitates art uh, in a really remarkable way. Um, I know the script existed in 2016, so I'm presuming uh, in World.ai, which I th- believe was founded in 2021, was necessarily directly inspired uh, by Free Guy. But surely, surely at this point in time, you guys must have like running jokes. Is the is the uh, is the movie playing on repeat at your offices? Like, what role <laughs> does Free Guy play for your team? Uh, because it really is just almost too good to be true. It's literally life imitating art. Yeah, I, I think that when you look around, um, Free Guy is like the most recent example, right? Of sort of this like very clear example of this AI sort of going from you know dumb NPC mode to smart NPC mode. So it's great, you know. We've uh, you know we we have actually engaged with some of the groups even who developed it and are thinking about sort of IP there. So there's really excitement there. But I think there's sort of such a precedent for these you know virtual worlds come to life. Like if you think about Westworld as another example, right? That one comes up a lot. You know, you even look back at game movies like Tron and these kinds of things where you basically have this, this you know, the arisal of like artificial intelligence within some sort of digital space. I think there really is sort of the precedent. I mean, of course, there's a million and one robot movies as well. But the exciting part, I think, about gaming and think about how that evolves is gaming is sort of like this natural. It, it constantly sort of is like the cutting edge of all virtual worlds and, and digital technologies. And because it has such high creative leniency, you know, and it has like, frankly, a higher risk tolerance than, you know, you're, you're like a tutor living in your house or something like this. And so I think that's why we see sort of gaming as such a, a kind of a beachhead for a lot of this technology. And, you know, Free Guy is probably pretty on point there. The reality is, though, we're kind of in designing them to be intelligent rather than them kind of just emerging out one day. Um, but who knows exactly where we're going to be in a few years. And I mean, we already have users who are, you know, developing these these actually like these, these characters that are very realistic and they inga- interact with for hours. I think I saw someone, you know, interact with one of their characters for six hours. <laughs> so there's, oh. there is some real life there. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's really going to change gaming. Um and also unlock like a whole new domain of gaming, right? There's a there's a very big difference between an NPC just kind of filling in a role versus being a very central part of the experience and facilitating that kind of firsthand. Yeah. So this gets into I'm gonna I will ask you how you guys actually do what you do, um, but there's kind of an in between question here, which is why does it matter? Why does it matter that NPCs are more engaging? Why does it matter? I mean, in in Free Guy. One of the the human the human player character the female human player character falls in love with Ryan Reynolds who she then realizes oh he's actually just an just air quotes just an NPC but so mm-hmm. believable so relatable that she actually falls in love with him uh, and they they share a kiss right um, and so that to me is incredibly powerful as a gamer I'm like forming that connection forming that deep connection with a with a character in the game whether it be a main character or an NPC or doesn't really matter I guess but. Tell, tell me a little bit more about why does that matter? Why does it matter that these NPCs are smarter? Why does it matter that they have more, you have more agency with the character, or the character has more agency in the game? They're not just filling in, like you just said, using your own, your own words there. Um, where, does, where does this go, and, and why does it matter? Why is it important? Yeah, so we actually recently, I have some, some data points for you here. So we recently did a, one of the first and largest studies on sort of like the, like in the future of NPCs and really understanding sort of gamers' preferences towards NPCs. 
And so like, I can start with that and then go into my own opinion. So, you know, we, we found, first of all, which was pretty wild is, you know, 99% of gamers said that, you know, more intelligent NPCs would improve games in whatever sort, right? Then that, and that you could think about that across very different things like first person shooters to RPGs to, you know, farming Sims. But really like there's a, it's kind of a very clear sentiment that everybody believes that these could have a, a successful impact on games if they're done well. Um, I think that sort of a lot of it is around the repetition. I think that we've almost come to think of NPCs as this separate thing in the same way that, you know, when you interact with a human, you have certain expectations of how they'll respond to you, how they'll show awareness of the context around them. And we got very used to, if you go back to, you know, obviously like Mario or even like the early Zelda games, you know, we got very used to these NPCs that are very static objects. They're, they're more like objects than they are like characters really within the world. And in the same way that you can have an interesting sword, you can have an interesting NPC. But when you think about sort of like what a person or an actor does within an actual scenario, I don't know if anybody's, you know, recently gone to the, um, the Star Wars ride in, in, the, in Disneyland, the new Galaxy's Edge, where you have actually actors playing a role that are facilitating your experience through it that you really couldn't do with sort of like, you know, one of these static NPCs. And so I, for us, sorry, it, third interrupt. I, I was actually, I was actually literally there last week. Uh, my okay, kids. great. <laughs> at their birthday. So I'd actually, uh, that was the first time I went to, uh, you know, the Star Wars area and uh, got to go to ride. And I was absolutely mind blown. Like it wasn't yeah. the wildest ride, but it was the most engaging because they had those actors yes. playing the role. You had, you were moving from area to area. You weren't quite, quite knowing what to expect. The, the, the actors were playing a role even when, the guests were behaving badly, so to speak, try to break them out of their their their, their mode. So I 100% hear you, like with very recent experience, literally just last week, experiencing that ride for the first time myself. Absolutely mind blown. And that really is, I think, the future in many ways of like how entertainment is going to evolve. It's going to be that really experiential, really deep, really yes. connected experience that isn't just about thrills and, and excitement and, you know, like the, you know, that's going to have a part of it. But it's going to be the, oh my God, I got goosebumps. I got chills by being in that experience and experiencing that firsthand. Like that to me is quite exciting, as you can probably tell. Yeah. That. And I, I think that like there's a, there's a general trend that we're picking up on here, which is, you know, if you think about content for the last 2000 years, there's a very clear creator consumer dynamic where you have a, a writer, for example, of a book, you have, you know, a, a, an actor on a stage. And all the content that's produced by the creator is ultimately consumed in a one-way fashion by the by the you know the viewer, the audience, the player. Where you create this dynamic, where as consumers we actually have an assumption that when we engage with content, that it effectively is this static thing that we are consuming or engaging with. In the same way, you know that we like consume a sandwich or we do you know these things. And I think that we're we're actually at like an interesting paradigm tipping point where I think it. Once we break through and realize that content doesn't need to be, you know, static, and, you know, games have done this for a while to a degree, but there's a certain level of interactivity, at least when it comes to humans, that requires that social nature. Like the most dynamic interactions we will have will almost always be with another human because there's this sort of context awareness, this shared understanding of each other, this empathy. And, you know, even like, well, so in our, in our, in our study, we found, you know, Users, there was like like four top dislikes that people had of current NPCs. One was just you know clear repetitive dialogue. The other was the inability to adapt to changes in games. So you can think about if I you know if I'm a very powerful character that's you know leveled up as like you know a level hundred mage, and I recently like you know attacked a village and burned it. You know the the, the next the next bartender in the next village over should probably react to me somewhat differently than if I was you know a level one 
knight who has you know been trying to save some villagers from some some uh, you know surprise from some bandits. And that inability to react, you know, it it immediately takes you out of the game. But we've become so used to NPCs reacting that way that those slight changes sort of really change it. Another one is like the awareness of the player themselves. So, you know, let's say I come in and I start breaking things on the wall and I do things. The fact that I, you know, you, I, I remember in like the, all the Fable games that I used to play, I'd steal all the items and always be surprised the merchant would never actually care, right? They're like, oh yeah, like, that's fine. You just steal all my items. I'm not going to react. And that lack of awareness completely changed the experience as well. And you're just kind of playing with these NPCs as objects. And the last is, of course, just stupid responses where, you know, even if they're reacting to all these things, if it's not really personality-driven dialogue that you feel kind of like adds to the immersiveness of the world and actually paints that picture, that's also something that's really missing. Um, and so I think sort of if we think about how to, you know, bring this all together to that greater context awareness so that, you know, NPCs aren't really these things that look just in a vacuum. You can think about a game as basically an entire mesh of a narrative with each thing sort of adapting. And that NPC sort of sits as a single node within that and is aware of where did you just come from? You know, what, who, who are you? What role are you playing? And how are they facilitating your kind of transition to the next part of the narrative? And all of that requires like such a deeper level of intelligence than NBCs have today or really any elements of games have today that I think we're really kind of just at the like day one of what this actually looks like. And I think in five years and 10 years, games are going to look completely different, both because of all, you know, if you think about combining this with the actual procedural generation of worlds and everything, it means that like players will no longer just be players by playing the game in the same way that you kind of create the world by interacting with it as a human you'll be creating the game as you interact with it in real time. And I think that's just such a dramatic sh paradigm shift that we still are kind of just scratching the surface of what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, you are preaching to the choir here. Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> I am completely uh, sold on on this vision, uh, and I completely believe in it as well as a gamer, as a you know consumer of entertainment. Um, everything goes more and more towards that experiential, and it goes more and more towards the adaptive where it's, you know, you're, there's an infinite number of paths, essentially, that you could end up on. Um, so that brings me to my next question, which is really a, kind of the nuts and bolts, nitty gritty, how the sausage gets made question, which is, what do you guys actually do? How, how does in-world operate? Uh, how are you using AI to uh, make NPCs smarter? Um, and what does it really entail in terms of actual, like, what is your product? <laughs> what, are you, yeah. what are you putting out there? Yeah, so the, our product could really be thought of as like three main components. So first of all, we have this studio, you know, which I welcome everyone to try, where you can go in and actually craft the personality of the character. And that's really sort of where you kind of are think, thinking about crafting the brain of the character. And we're also then going to be introducing a bunch of new features over this next month where it's not, you know, in the same way that I mentioned a character doesn't exist in a vacuum. you got to think about that whole context, the structure of scenes, the world information, you know, relationships between characters and how you sort of compose all of those into the character themselves. So we have a studio, which is basically you can think about as the kind of main place where you can design all of that. Then sort of what you're actually doing is when you create that character, you're saving down a brain that is then saved into our, our back end. And then what happens is we have these integrations. So you plug these into Unity, Unreal, Node, React. We have Roblox integrations. We're working on a Minecraft one now, which means basically you can take that brain and like literally just think about attaching it to any character in a specific you know, game world. And that then basically gives that brain access to, assuming you have the skeleton and everything set up, you know, animating the character, bringing it to life with gestures. And so what then happens in real time is you're, 
you kind of think about accepting in a stream of events, very similarly to how we're talking here right now, you know, I'm, I'm seeing my computer screen. I am, you know, like, you know, hearing the audio that you just told me, I'm seeing the context around me and that's all influencing it. So we literally accept in sort of a runtime. So you plug that into the game engine and then you're streaming in a, a stream of information that includes audio, visual, text, um, environment awareness, uh, you know, any events that have happened in the game engine. And then those get passed through in our engine through a series of machine learning models that sort of extracts out all the relevant information. So emotionality, what goal should be active, any specific items that you mentioned, let's say what intent the user had. So if you know they wanted you to attack the other player or they wanted you to pick up an item for them, you recognize that. And then those all basically get fed out into what we call our orchestration layer, where you kind of compose all that those machine learning outputs into a specific kind of format that then gets passed through to a series of large language models. So similar to like ChatGPT or GPT-3, you know, we we actually select from a variety of different models in real time. You know, we we actually, for some use cases, we use something very similar to ChatGPT. For other ones, we use ones that are more optimized for storytelling and question and answering. Um, and so then basically that outputs, you know, what does the character say? You know, how do they behave? You know, how do they speak in terms of the style? We then also pass out sort of what are the animations and gestures. So you're actually triggering, okay, this character is happy and they're in a specific context. So, you know, they're going to put their hands up in the air. You know, in this case, they're very angry and, you know, they're this. So they're going to like swing their sword at you or whatever it is, right? And then we also then pass all of like that through to another protocol and we do text-to-speech. And so basically what you end up getting out from that sort of stream of input in is very realistic behavior in real time. And that real time is really important because, you know, we've set up this whole system so that, you know, it operates with around like a 500 millisecond latency where you think about sort of, you know, going through all those machine learning models, passing it through large language models, getting it out and doing text to speech. It's pretty amazing because even if you don't you know, use chat GPT, you're probably still waiting one to two seconds for every response, um, which is difficult in the, you know, a gaming scenario because you want that sort of realistic, um, like real time reactions. And so those are sort of the main three parts is that studio integrations and engine. Um, the engine is, of course, kind of like the main backbone of all of this and is kind of actually powering the intelligence of the character. And when you're creating any brain, basically each character can share a brain. And it's important because the way that we've constructed the protocol is assuming you might have a world that has a million characters and a thousand players, let's say. And of course, you don't want all of them to be alive and moving all the time. So we've set it up in a way that the characters will always be behaving when they're interacting with a character or there's even a, or sorry, a player in the proximity but you sort of don't have to, like, as a developer, you're not paying for every single character that's kind of living in that world because you're sort of only activating it when there's actually an interaction. And so really, yeah, so it, it is kind of like this whole, this mentality of, you know, where we are giving you the tools to craft these brains and the tools to integrate them into their worlds. Um, and, you know, the consequence of that for developers is kind of this new paintbrush. And the consequence of that for players is, of course, this new step of kind of interactivity within their, within their game worlds. So as far as I understand it, uh, from all the reporting uh, on ChatGPT and you know other AI stuff that's going on, um, my understanding is that it, it's very computationally expensive. Uh, you just alluded to the fact that you know you, you query ChatGPT, it takes a while sometimes for the response to come. Um, not good enough for gaming; it has to happen in real time. I can't be sitting there for two seconds waiting for you know the brain to, to you know click into gear and then you know mm -hmm. tell me whatever it's going to say from from the character's mouth. Um, so. Uh, that's also, I believe, financially very expensive. You know, computationally expensive and financially expensive to to be running these large language models and um, you know, very complex calculations in real time. Um, what do the economics look like? And I'm not asking like you know, cents and dollars. I'm asking more like how how is that factoring into your product 
How is that factoring into what you're charging developers? What is your revenue model? How are you thinking yeah. about the cost structure versus the uh, expected income that yeah. you can make? Um, yeah, so we we think really deeply on this kind of, I think about, you know, if you think about a graph of like the cost and value curve, you know, over time, the way that we're adding on new features, we really kind of want to constantly be adding new value to both developers in terms of their expression as well as players in the end. And so every week we're going through releases that are driving up features that are pushing that. Of course, though, you do have to consider that cost curve. So I think in the last year, our costs went down 10x already. And that's just through to various optimizations, better hardware, all these kinds of things. And actually next week, we're looking at dropping our prices by somewhere to from, you know, uh, five to 10 X again. So, um, you know, we're, we're seeing sort of dramatic in, increases in sort of like that value to cost ratio. And basically the way that it's working is sort of, you know, when you're having these interactions with characters, there's a multiple ways that we can get charged in the way that, you know, as a developer, you can pay. So the first is you can pay like per interaction or per action minute. So if, let's say you're an enterprise user and your enterprise use case, and you don't really care about how long a person interacts. Let's say it's like, you know, a brand representation case. I just want like a one minute or two minute pitch to the person and I don't really care. So you might want to pay per minute because you're not trying to like ramp up the amount of time that a user is actually spending interacting with this character. So you can pay basically, that's what I would call like usage-based pricing. Um, the other option, let's say you're a game and you're selling your title for 50 to $100. And you know that, you know, you don't have in-app purchases. So you're very interested in sort of just, you know, kind of, minimizing the cost per user to interact, integrate these interactive characters, that's basically user-based pricing. So we can basically charge you a cost per new user that comes on. You kind of bake that into your development cost, and then you basically get you know unlimited usage of those characters for that user um, as long as you've paid that sort of per user basis. And then the last option you can imagine, of course, because games have very different business models today, right? You, you know, we kind of moved away from the standard, you know, single purchase title to more freemium or in-app purchases and these kinds of things. And so in that case, we do also have like a revenue sharing option where let's say, you know, you you are you know mainly targeting sort of a lot of like in-game purchases, in which case, you know, maybe your character can facilitate those in-game purchases as a vendor or just as kind of part of the experience or even as an add-on. Then we can sort of move into a revenue sharing model. And we also do sort of think sort of around the flexibility to kind of move all of those. So you could have some combination of small and you know usage-based pricing, small user-based pricing, and some revenue sharing. You could go for one or the other. And the reason that we think that's super flexible is as a market, gaming has very non-standard business models. Every game has a very different way of making money. Every player has a very different way of paying for their games. Um, so that's sort of like the model that we we kind of go after. Um, importantly though, like, you know, mainly for like the developers who are listening is, you know, we recognize game development is a long process. So, you know, those are, those all make sense when you're thinking about production. But as I mentioned, you know, our, our costs are going down so much that if you're a developer starting to build a day and you're launching in two years or three years, costs are probably going to be, you know, orders of magnitude lower than they are today. And so what we've really started focusing on is also like development packages where, you know, we can actually help you start developing your game, start integrating, give you complete, like, unlimited usage of the platform and, and characters um, for, you know, an annual subscription. And that basically gives you sort of that ability to one, keep up to date with all the latest trends that we're working on, get at early access to features. Um, also to actually work directly with us, you know, integrating and even thinking about how AI impacts games is kind of a new area. So we want to kind of provide some, some help and thought leadership in that space. And so we really think about like, you know, 
business model and cost in two buckets, which is like development stage, which is you're developing the game, and then runtime or production stage where you're paying based on those user usage or um, revenue sharing models. And that's sort of how it works for us. And as long as you know you're you have users interacting, you know we're we're getting a benefit out of it. You're getting a benefit out of it. So the business model, we believe at least, hopes kind of like is a very clear sort of win-win scenario for both parties. Uh, you've alluded to something, or not alluded to, you, you, you flat out stated it, um, uh, lots of different business models for lots of you know different ga- gaming companies. You also mentioned uh, enterprise users, which gets into, we're going to get into that in a second, just because, you know, again, I, I have to believe that you're not just doing, air quotes, just, it's a big problem to solve. It's an exciting problem to solve, but it's not you know just solving dumb NPC problem. It's, you know, chatbots and things like that. I have to imagine you've got some pretty big ideas for where this can go beyond just just gaming. Um, but where I'm going with this is what where, what's your wedge been so far? Um, you know, what's the tip of the spear, so to speak? What kinds of developers is this resent, uh, uh, resonating with the most? Is it smaller devs that do in-app purchases and mobile? Is it, you know, big console, you know, two, three-year cycles where they want to have incredibly smart characters that are like, you know, a big part of the storyline? Mm-hmm. Where where has this this really taken off? Like where has this grown um, early on? Yeah, so we've seen like there's two main groups. So when we when we look at our customer base or you know growing user base, there's really two big paths. There's one which is self service, and what I one which is I call like produce projects. So on the self service side, it's sort of a predominant group of sort of game devs. So people kind of creating. You know, we've seen some that are creating new versions of like an uh, Animal Crossing style of game. Some that are creating RPGs, some that are creating you know fighting games where you have you know, a, you know a, you're shooting a plane and the you know the character the enemy character is yelling at you. So there's sort of like a big chunk of a variety of indie types of game experiences within that self service side. We've also had groups that are using it for education, so they're creating you know characters who can actually teach people and do tutoring. We've had some who have created you know therapy styles of use cases, which I you know I don't think AI is quite ready for yet, but I think is really worthwhile to experiment with. Um, and then we've, of course, got enterprise users who are looking at for things like brand representation. So you could imagine taking a famous celebrity or musician and bringing them to life as part of a marketing campaign or as sort of an add-on feature for a product. And so those sort of break down into like the main two buckets we see are really like gaming and entertainment and then like enterprise. We tend to sort of be weighted more towards the gaming entertainment, but of course, enterprise is growing. And I think as the AI evolves, the ability to use these things for realistic use cases will expand as well. And we are ultimately a developer platform. So, you know, there's tons of companies out there that have created great front ends for creating these sort of, you know, virtual humans for enterprise use cases. And eventually we just, you know, we will power those. Um, and then the sort of second bucket is what I call like the produced projects. And that's working with large customers like Disney and AAA game studios, where they're looking at a much longer development cycle and they're more interested in, okay, we're going to be launching a title in like three to five years. How do we start working with you today to start integrating with that, you know, thinking about the possibilities? Um, and so that's really kind of like a, a, like a whole secondary bucket where I really kind of break down into kind of like large entertainment groups. You know, you can imagine the Disney's in, of the world. You can think about AAA game studios who are building either narrative oriented games or integrating these as UGC. Then there's sort of like a virtual world, which you think about like a Roblox, Minecraft, a central land, these types of experiences where you're exposing it as a tool for creators to actually integrate characters into their own games. Um, and I think that's super exciting because ultimately we want this to be accessible to everyone. And so, you know, the more that these platforms take it up, the more it becomes accessible for all creators. Um, then there's sort of, um, of course, like the large customers, we've got, you know, universities that are using it for education use cases and all these kinds of things. And 
So really, it really runs the full gamut. Um, we, um, yeah, but of course, I think that the reason that gaming sort of is our primary focus is because it has that highest expectation for creatives. Like they're the, the fidelity and the quality and the amount of modalities that you're supporting in a game are higher than anywhere else. And so by building there, we're making sure that we're building the highest quality bar. But of course, you know, if we're hitting the, you know, triple A gaming quality bar, it very well translates into, you know, an enterprise use case or anything else, because, you know, a, a triple A um, developer at Ubisoft probably has the, the highest bar for, you know, what they're expecting. And so we believe by building towards those use cases and building those features, we're also kind of unlocking everything for everyone else as well. So I come from the world of, you know, live ops, Xinga, uh, you know, mobile in-app purchases, uh, you know, an operating game as a live service for, for a long period of time, not the packaged goods side of things, you know, where, you know, you spend two or three years building something and then ship it and kind of probably don't operate a lot of live ops, although that's more and more part of all game uh, studios approach. Um, I'm very curious to hear, at least for, for me, I'm like, okay, this sounds great. This sounds really exciting. I, I'm, you're pretty, like I said, preaching to the choir. This is the future. I buy it. Um, but, you know, it's all about the numbers and the metrics, ultimately. Um, you know, if you're going to incorporate something or integrate something as a developer, whether it's for gaming or anything else, if you're planning on operating that as a live service for, you know, a long period of time, you're only going to integrate something um, if it's going to be driving metrics. Uh, real, real numbers. So I'm very curious to hear. Uh, I know you're still pretty early on, uh, and it's still you know growing your user base, your customer base. Do you have examples of developers, whether they be in gaming or or otherwise, um, where they've integrated your technology and they've seen a boost to retention, engagement, monetization, any other kind of core metrics that really drive the business forward? Yeah, we. So most of our because we're only roughly about a year and a half old, and our studio went live last year. Games, you know, at least have like a six plus development cycle, um, month development cycle. And so there aren't like, at least publicly, there's no metrics I can specifically show you. But they have one group that integrated it last in the last couple of weeks and I think saw roughly like a 20% bump in in retention. Um, we've, uh, you know, we're, we're doing a bunch of studies now so that we can actually publish a lot of these more publicly. But we're definitely seeing sort of there's a... Definitely in terms of like retention and replayability, we're seeing a big uptick um, in terms of, you know, your ability just to kind of engage a player over time and kind of adapt to them. Of course, then you can also replay an experience like infinite amount of times and actually have a completely different playthrough with different interactions. Um, it also sort of extends. So what we're seeing is if you think about a game, even like a cyberpunk right you you let's say you complete the game but now you want to go back through and interact with the characters and ask them their opinions on the world and kind of build that world building in the same way that you know you have these 100 percent completionists who are going through every game and getting every easter egg now that sort of becomes like an infinite amount of interaction right you could go around the world and like because the ai is a generative world they kind of like create the world for you as you interact with them and so for even like smaller experiences you now kind of increase the playtime. Uh, near infinitely, right? Of course, it might get boring after a while. And so that capacity is sort of, you know, increase the immersiveness, increase the replayability, increase day one retention is, is really big. So one specific scenario I'll give you is, you know, I don't know if people have jumped on to like, for example, Meta's Horizon, but the big thing and actually one of the things that inspired us to start the company is when you jump into a lot of these virtual worlds, they're completely dead on day one. So, you know, the same thing is like a Roblox game or a new Minecraft game or any of these where you have these kind of UGC um, style of experiences where if there's no one there on day one, especially if it's a socially oriented experience, you're going to jump in and jump right back out. So day one retention is extremely low and they all face this sort of cold start problem. 
And so what we find is like one of the biggest benefits from day one, at least, of integrating these AI MPCs is you basically have, you know, a, po- a native population that they're, that's there waiting for the player. And it means that when they jump in there, it's already full of life and that day one retention goes up dramatically. Um, and so that can be performed just by having characters who are playing roles. You can actually integrate. People are doing a lot of like onboarding characters. You actually, let's say you create a companion that as you enter the game world, this companion is now with you and you kind of feel like, you know, ushered into that space. And so those are a lot of kind of the, the specific ones that we're seeing. There's then also, I think, um, depending on the style of game, shopkeepers are a common um, use case as well, because shopkeepers are this, you know, canonical dumb NPC that, you know, is very, we all interact with because if you're playing an RPG, you've got to go buy your items and they're all the same scripted dialogue. But now having that sort of interactivity also means that it increases the capacity for developers to integrate things like, you know, in-app purchases or even like intentionally sell a specific item or, you know, all these kinds of things. And so the, that that also, I think we're seeing a potential um, big benefit in terms of in-app purchases while coming through these AI-powered shopkeepers. Um, yeah, I think that kind of related to that day one retention, onboarding into games has always kind of been this challenging thing, right? You create this sort of, you know, initial mission experience, which is maybe easier than other ones. You know, it gives you sort of, you know, basic controls as you click through. But having a character, for example, that you can actually ask questions about the world or the controls as you're entering that world also just means that you kind of increase the chance that any player sort of immediately sort of resonates with that experience and understands how to continue. So you may not only, it's not only about day one retention, um, but actually even for like, you know, console purchases or these kinds of things where you're buying a title, you increase the chance that a player is actually going to kind of get over that initial hump, get invested in that game and kind of play through to the end, um, which I would just call more general engagement metrics is are also seeing an uptick. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can definitely see that. I think that cold start problem is is one that all game developers or most, not all, but many game developers face where it's, you know, you're creating this incredibly immersive world, but it's only immersive if you actually have people in there uh, to actually engage with. Uh, and it goes anywhere from, you know, I mean, I was a, a GM of Zynga poker, um, you know, mm-hmm. poker, poker is a, a classic example of you need that network effect. Um, and I think a lot of games these days rely on that kind of social experience, uh, social proof and having those, you know, inter- interactions with, uh, with others in the game. Now, if you can do what you guys are doing, and actually multiply that from day zero when you have that person coming in and actually have meaningful interactions that are different each time with each character. Oh, that, that could be quite interesting. Um, so that kind of brings me to my, to my next question, which is, um, you know, your team has been working uh, for a long time on AI-related or AI-adjacent uh, companies. You were at DeepMind. Uh, I know your co-founder, Ilya, um, from from assignment at Google, he sold a company called Dialogflow, and uh, I think maybe even another company to Google. Um, I, I think your third co-founder also um, has a has a pretty deep experience in AI. Um, but I'm I, I don't know. And I, it sounds like you're all gamers, and you've obviously thought deeply about gaming. But uh, is it fair to say this is your first foray into taking AI and using it for for games? And and if so, what was the impetus for doing so? Why were you motivated to to take your experience working on? Presumably, very hard problems. I mean, DeepMind literally, like, <laughs> trying to solve some of the hardest problems in the universe, um, and then only taking it to get. Again, I, I'm a gamer myself. I'm a game developer myself, so I, I use use it kind of self deprecatingly. Um, sure. But you know, solving some of the world's biggest problems and solving the problem of dumb NPCs. I, I hope you're not taking this the wrong way. 
I'm just curious <laughs> to hear what was your thought process heading into this space, into this vertical, uh, and, and trying to solve this problem. Um, yeah, for sure. So I've been working sort of on like natural language processing and generative AI for a while. And, you know, when a lot of this stuff blew up at, you know, with GPT-3 and that, we had sort of responsive efforts at DeepMind. Um, you know, I was kind of building a lot of the models and then I was trying to help to integrate those into Google products. And one of the things that I found is, you know, whether it's a consumer product like search or assistant or an enterprise product like customer support or cloud conversational AI, Google, you were constantly running into a lot of these issues where, you know, customers had very high expectations from day one. And we've seen a lot of these issues now. Look at how Bing has been received, you know, the issues that Google had with their their attempted launch of BARD. You know, when you when you launch these things sort of with the the note of this is a hyper-intelligent, you know, AGI style of, you know, character, user expectations are super high and you sort of remove a lot of the benefits that these models have, which is their, like, you know, their creativity, their, you know, their adaptiveness, their flexibility. Because when you just want sort of, you know, a hyper-intelligent character, you're not really taking advantage of that. And so I'm very interested in the question of, you know, how can we naturally integrate these things into interac interactions with humans? And of course, you could think about, you know, in the end state, you know, these things powering robots and all those kinds of areas. But the challenge is like, what is the starting point for all of that? And gaming has always been sort of that, that testing ground for great technologies, right? Like, we Unreal and Unity started as game engines and now are used for like flight simulations and, you know, simulating physics scenarios and even like molecular simulation, you know, and the way that we tell stories as well, I think it really kind of starts with gaming in a lot of cases where, you know, years ago it used to come out of books or movies and now you see like Last of Us and Arcane as kind of these things that have flowed out of, you know, uh, well, Last of Us and, and League of Legends. And, and so I think that there's two points there, which is, Gaming is a great space because it has extremely high creative leniency in the sense that you can really do anything with very low risk. Worst case, you're going to maybe have a bad scenario where like, you know, an NPC is going to do something dumb within the game, but it's not going to hurt anyone. It's not going to harm them in any way. There's also then the, you know, the capacity for actual creative expression. Like you have really high end creatives working on this stuff who have very high expectations and very clear sort of desires and what that means is the amount of control that they're able to exert over the experience is much higher than it would be, let's say, for an enterprise experience. So that's why gaming as a domain is, is so sort of promising uh, as a place for the applications of this generative AI. And then the other angle is, you know, we were this kind of started before the whole metaverse craze and meta did its announcement and all those kinds of things. And we saw that, you know, in these worlds, there was this, this cold start problem was everywhere. You basically just had like lots of experiences and worlds that people were standing up that nobody was in. Um, and so basically, you can kind of think about those two dynamics happening, which is, you know, gaming or virtual worlds becoming sort of the predominant place where creatives and experiences are, are initially built, combined with sort of this question of, you know, we have this generative AI that can create text and images and animations and gestures. And it's like, okay, so if that's true, that, you know, virtual worlds and gaming is truly sort of that, that spear point of a lot of innovation and it, and it has that sort of creative leniency to allow for some of that risk tolerance and we have these technologies, it seems like the natural place to build it. And so that's sort of how we initially lined and we, you know, through the metaverse stuff and that we had like other questions of, you know, how that, how that all comes together. And I think where we've ended up is, is gaming really is that perfect place. And I mean, even from a, you know, a business model perspective, you know, you have game studios who are building this for millions of users. We get interactions with those users. We get feedback from those users, meaning like our iteration cycle can dramatically speed up compared to if, you know, we're getting one-to-one -one chats with consumers who are using it for a variety of areas. Um, 
And so, yeah, that's sort of really how it all came together is, you know, we were, we had kind of had experience working consumer apps and customer support and all these kinds of things, seeing the challenges that they had with trying to apply these things. And then looking over at gaming and entertainment as this space where you had extremely high creative potential and the need for sort of this next level of immersion. And so naturally, like building a platform for interactive characters led us to gaming. So where do you think we are in terms of the adoption curve for AI? Uh, and, and the reason I bring this up, I, anybody who's known me for any length of time knows that uh, you know VR, people have been up and down on VR for decades now. Right? VR has existed as a technology for a really long time. Everyone always said it would be great for gaming. Uh, we, you know, we had big acquisitions and huge amounts of money pumped into it, you know, most notably, of course, by you know, Zuck over at, at Meta. Um, and it still really isn't hitting its potential. Um, and and I've, I've been, and the reason I bring this up is I've kind of been negative on VR for, for my entire life, let's put it that way, uh, certainly my entire gaming career. And, and, and the reason being, I've always maintained, and I, it doesn't make me right, but this is, this is my, my thesis, having this heavy, chunky thing on your head, you know, the motion sickness associated with it, you know, even if it gets better, it's still going to be a niche thing, right? Um, despite all the hype and, and money that's been pumped into it. Um, is AI different? Uh, and if so, how? And, and if, if so, where are we in, in the AI cycle in terms of you know, it being yeah. adopted for real consumer purposes, not just, you know, not, not just attracting a lot of hype, not just attracting a lot of funding, which, which happens through lots of different technology cycles, but really being adopted by the consumer for real life use cases that actually makes our lives better, more entertaining, more fun, whether it's in games or enterprise. Yeah. So I think AI is different. So AI has been around for a long time. I mean, even if you go back to like Turing and the initial computers, like that was really kind of an initial stab at like what we you know think of as AI now, right? And you know, the the evolution of computers went from sort of this this area where you know encoding even a basic code using a bunch of punch cards was a big chore, and then you got into sort of you know the ability to you know type in your code in a computer, and you had you know more uh, abstracted programming languages like Python on top of that that made it easier to interact with these things. You needed to write compiler code. And to me, that is all towards like interacting with computers and information becoming easier. The big, gener- the big jump that we made with AI and machine learning is the computers themselves were able to then process that information and actually output. Like even if even basic ML, even if you're thinking about linear regression, you're still outputting some sort of code or some sort of information that wasn't input by the user. So we've kind of we, there was like a shift that probably happened, you know, 10, 10 years ago, which was you know computers from this input mechanism where humans are using them as a tool to computers actually being able to process and have inputs that they independently are coming up with, albeit with algorithms that you know humans design. And then with generative AI, now the actual algorithms or internal states of the care of the models are themselves um, kind of generated. Like they are, they are emergent in the real time. So depending on your action, you're having that. And so, you know, compared to VR, where you know you're like, okay, you've got to first assume that people want to wear this chunky thing on their head, right? That's kind of a hard ask. But saying that, you know. We all want to interact with information in some form, whether that's through character interactions or images or code generation. You know, we all use computers every day. So to say that that won't have some impact is, is very difficult to kind of, for me at least, to grasp. Um, and so where I think we're at right now is, frankly, I think in the last six months to a year, you know, even when we were talking to studios a year ago, 
it's a very different conversation today. I think we've proven like, you know, through chat GPT and code generation and, you know, just general kind of generative AI with text to images, we've seen that there is really value there and that it's value that is accessible to everyone. You know, I have, you know, I have friends that, you know, generate birthday cards for their grandma, right? Using the text to image generation. And, you know, I, I've seen other groups now using it for video generation and, you know, being able to reformat things from a, you know, a live movie to an anime. And so, you know, the, the, this space in which we're able to tackle it is much larger now. And so I think we're kind of at this point where I see it's like awareness is there. People are thinking about AI and now they're starting to think through, you know, how will this work for my specific vertical use case? And so, my view is that like with a lot of these foundation models like GPT-3, Stability AI, Midjourney, you know, whatever the domain is that you're working in, you can hit basically something like a 70% quality bar by using those sort of core technologies. But of course, if you want to be differentiated and cost effective and really deliver value, you've got to move into that, you know, from that 70 to 90 or 100% quality range. And in order to do that, it requires going much deeper on verticals. So for example, you know, you could take a basic generative model and try and hook it up to a character, but you're going to get lower latency. You're not going to get realistic personalities. There's going to be no coherence, no environment awareness. And so that's really why InWorld exists. And so what I see is we're at this point now where, you know, there's probably billions, of, maybe a billion or even more people in the world who are aware of what AI is and what the potential is. Each of them is asking the question of how will that be specifically you know, validated or integrated into their domain? And then we have tool builders like us who are building those specific verticalized solutions that move you from that 70 to that 100% quality bar. And I think it's happening rapidly in the same way that, you know, you saw companies move from brick and mortar to websites in the 90s and early 2000s. I think the same thing is going to happen with AI where every single group is going to look at, okay, how will my business or my product be impacted by this new technology? And I think it's going to happen in the next six to eight months, frankly. I think everybody is now thinking, how will AI impact my industry? I think you have the tool builders who are building those verticalized solutions. And then I assume that, you know, we're going to slowly see every single domain sort of take this up. And I'd say we're kind of in that, you know, in that sort of, you know, the, the innovators dilemma um, group, you know, you're kind of, there's like the, always like the pit of despair, which I think we were probably in, you know, a couple of years ago, which is like, how does this stuff actually hit any value? And now the general public is starting to take it up. And then as we see general adoption, it's going to be as we see those verticalized solutions coming into play. So I'd say we're in a very exciting and kind of dramatic time with AI where it's going to all of a sudden kind of hit everything, but probably not exactly in the ways that we think because, you know, ultimately nobody wants to be thinking about their product using AI. They just want to use a great product. And so I think it's going to take a lot of people thinking deeply on how it fits to specific user groups and specific domains. But I see this all kind of culminating in the next like one to three years and then after that, we're going to see, you know, in the same way that you had, you know, the move from brick and mortar companies to Amazon in the early 2000s, the same thing is going to happen with internet companies or whatever companies moving to AI over the next two years. And we're going to basically see who are the new Amazons and Googles of the world in, in this new AI age. Um, and that will also kind of then impact, I think, how each consumer takes it up. But I think we're kind of at that stage now where, it's proven, but how that looks for each specific product or domain is is still TBD. Yeah, I, I, you know, I do buy that. Um, I really do. And I want to buy that because I think it makes life so much better uh, for consumers in, in so many ways, at least in theory. Uh, you know, I think the in practice, we'll just have to see. Uh, you know, I, I worked in voice along with, with Ilya. Um, and I 
100%, you know, in, in early 2018, I was 100%, 1,000% convinced that voice was going to revolutionize so many different aspects of our lives. And, and you know, you could argue it has to a degree, um, but, but I don't think it's really played out the way we perhaps expected it to. And it certainly hasn't become as ubiquitous, um, you know, to interact with our environment using our voices, which, of course, is the most natural way to interact. Um, does not disprove your thesis. And I, like I said, I actually believe your thesis. Um, I'm just curious to see how it plays out and how fast it actually plays out, because I do think we have some examples um, from history where it hasn't actually played out quite exactly the way um, we anticipated. Um, Now, that brings me nicely onto my next question, which is you guys have raised a lot of money um, fairly early, early on in your existence in order to make this a reality. So, you know, you're well capitalized. So that obviously gives you guys a, a huge legs up. Um, I believe you announced a 50 million series a April of last year. Um, and I believe you raised 20 million in pre-seed and seed funding prior to that. And I believe you were founded in 2021, um, mm-hmm. give or, give or yep. take. Um, now, Raising a lot of money obviously helps, um, but the question I actually have for you here is not so much the amount of money, it's more who you've raised it from. Obviously, you've got your traditional VCs that are taking a bet on new technology. That makes total sense. But you also have a very, in my mind, unusual uh, cap table in that you've taken money from uh, Intel. Intel Capital, I believe, led your uh, or co-led your Series A. You've got Microsoft on there, Micron, LG, NTT, Docomo, I think some others as well. Um, these are kind of traditional corporate tech companies. Um, I'm very curious to hear why you chose to go with these partners. What are they betting on and what are you betting on with them? Uh, this, this seems to me go beyond games. Um, and, yeah. and I've kind of been teasing at this a little bit <laughs> throughout this entire podcast, but I'm very curious to hear what is the next, where do you go after gaming and, and why these, these corporate partners? Yeah. So the corporate partners are super important because, you know, when, as we're with a product like this, where you're creating a new market you're still going to be ending up hitting on sort of like traditional user bases. So at the same point, like if you look at those investors that we have, they kind of cover the basis of, you know, all different markets. So whether that's, you know, ND2 Docomo in Japan, you know, we've got LG, um, you know, these different groups that are basically tackling different like um, national markets or in terms of different sort of vertical markets as well. And by bringing on sort of these investors, one, it gives us access to, you know, they're all thinking about this AI stuff. So you can think about L, like you know, AI assistance, you know, a lot of these groups as well, like Meta and Microsoft obviously have, you know, gaming aspects of their own. Um, and so they give us sort of, first of all, I guess, access to any of their internal projects. Two, they give us access to any of their external customers that they've been working with that may want to integrate this into one of their products. They also offer sort of opportunities for synergies. So let's say they wanted to offer local compute um, like through one of their servers or their, some of the, on their devices, and we can integrate the characters and the engine into that. That also unlocks it. I think importantly, though, too, it it gives us sort of um, acts like if you think about sort of moving into like a market like Japan or Korea, where you have a huge gaming market, but ultimately as an American company, having worked in American tech for a long time, we don't have the experience necessarily to understand, you know, how do those consumers think, you know, what are they interested in? And so by working with these folks, we can really kind of like adapt our product and our pitch and our sort of value proposition to those different areas. Um, so that's, I think, like the biggest thing. And then over time, you know, we have we've had talks with some of these companies, you know, you can imagine every single appliance or electronics ending up having a personality or a character inter- integrated into it. You know, into the future, I think, frankly, robots are probably not that far away. And naturally, you know, you think of, as I mentioned, gaming is that perfect test bed for building these things. 
once we have characters that can both both compose, you know, animations and gestures and movements as well as dialogue, it makes sense to start integrating those into you know intelligent appliances or even robots in the future. Um, and so, you know, we ultimately do want to position ourselves as that character personality engine. But the scope of where that goes is is truly unlimited. Um, we just want to kind of focus on the areas first where kind of like they push us the furthest in terms of quality. Um, but we already have groups that are looking at those. And so, yeah, that's where I think, you know, I'd say, you know, a few years out, definitely we're very interested in sort of, you know, the ability to just bring life to these general electronics, as well as looking at things like education and therapy and training um, as super important. And so all of those partners are both sort of, you know, important from that, that kind of market understanding, the distribution angle, the integration or tech synergies of being able to, for example, serve on premise uh, efficiently. Um, and then also looking at sort of, you know, larger strategic initiatives to co-build products that might give us access to a specific national market or kind of new area. And so that's sort of why we, why we engage with them and why we think that those strategic partners are, are really important to have on board. So you're saying I'm going to be having uh, conversations with my my coffee maker and my toaster. Uh, <laughs> I, I love. I mean, I, I keep like you know these these Roombas, right? Like how I keep thinking it would be hilarious if your Roomba had like this kind of quirky, sarcastic personality where you're like, yeah. can you please clean up the bedroom? It's like, well, you know, you just made a mess yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really yeah, mind? I, I got, it wasn't a Roomba, but it was one of these Chinese knockoffs. I'm sure it's, it's tracking my house and, you know, transmitting everything to the Chinese communist government. But uh, <laughs> we called it, we called it, we called it Vicky uh, and I got two kids. Uh, they, they, they write uh, thank you notes to Vicky uh, for cleaning our house uh, during the That's pandemic hilarious. when we had to kind of uh, pause on, on having in-person cleaners. So, so yeah, you're not like, it's not crazy to think that inanimate objects that we traditionally would think of as just being inanimate objects like NPCs, mostly in, in games, kind of brings it back full circle here, um, actually could have personalities. And there's there's really nothing wrong with having a toaster or a, a Roomba or a coffee maker or my Instant Pot or whatever uh, telling me jokes or being sarcastic or, you know, being grumpy, you know, because it's tired, it's done too much cooking or whatever. Um, I, I love the idea of that universe. Uh, it's a little creepy, uh, I think, uh, depending on how far you take it. But at the same time, it's incredibly fascinating and interesting to to think that we could be interacting. I mean, I think if there's one thing that the pandemic showed people is, you know, we, we went fully remote as a company, like not no longer having in-person interactions or having way fewer in-person interactions than we perhaps used to is not good for <laughs> humanity. Humans are social creatures. And mm -hmm. whether you're dealing with a actual human being, which of course is by far the best, or having engagements, interactions with NPCs or, you know, personalities that are embedded in, in objects really can't be a bad thing. Uh, I think that mm -hmm. could only be a good thing for, for society. So anyway, on that, that very yeah, lofty yeah, you're note. exactly right there, right? <laughs> Humans are social, social creatures. And, you know, I think that the way that we've learned to interact with technologies and specifically computers is very inhuman, right? Like yeah. we're typing away on this black box where I always think if an alien was to like all of a sudden look at us doing what we're doing right now, right? We're, we're either staring into these, these like metal boxes or like typing on these things. And we're basically just converting, converting coffee and food into keyboard strokes. And I feel like there's a much more natural way that we can interact with technology through these sort of interactive AI. Um, and I think that's that's sort of where I think a lot of this leads is, you know, what if what if we don't ever have to sit down and like type away on this black box? We just go through either our real world and there's these integrated characters or AI that are kind of personified or anthropomorphic or you're in these virtual worlds and games where they exist. 
it feels like at a certain point, you know, even in the way that code generation, all these things are working, you could just ask your AI to complete certain tasks. And all of a sudden, we're back to where we were, you know, a few hundred years ago, where technology is really just this kind of secondary thing that you don't sort of, you know, spend all your time independently interacting with. You're just interacting with humans, or in this case, maybe human-like AI, and that fulfills basically your life. And that feels sort of going back to like the way that naturally humans behave and want to behave. And I think actually has like a huge benefit for just like human well-being overall. Mm. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And by the way, this is the exact same rationale why I was so excited about voice and got into voice and started a voice you know, tech startup is because voice is one of the more natural ways to communicate. Like yep. it's, there's, you know, when you look at your kids, you know, I, I, have, I have two kids and they they communicate much more naturally. Like I found it really hard to adopt Siri on my phone because I'm just so used to like, you know, touching and tapping and typing and having a keyboard. But they have, a, they have naturally adopted mm. voice as their primary interface. Um, you know, and I think AI is, is in a very similar class of technology where it just makes things much more natural. Like using chat GBT versus like the, the way we've been trained by Google to do searches <laughs> over the years, right? Like it's just, yeah. you know, pecking at words, whereas naturally, that's not what you would do. That's not how you talk to people. That's not how you ask a query of a normal human being. Like, yeah. it's far from it. It's completely alien. Um, so yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see where we go here. Um, yeah, like I said, very lofty ending, but that's that's the best kind of ending um, for a show like this where we're talking about something that really has very major ramifications and transformative potential effects on not just gaming, but, you know, all of society. So I want to say a huge thank you um, to our guest, Kylan Gibbs, uh, co-founder and uh, chief product officer of inworld.ai. I am really excited, genuinely really excited to see what you guys build. I created my own avatar slash brain. I don't know what you guys are calling them. Character. Um, winter, not winter soldier. Winter something or other. I'm from Finland, so I use winter <laughs> a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, excited to to, uh, to play around with your technology. And uh, as a game developer, excited to explore what we can do um, with smarter NPCs and, and more intelligent game design. So thank you very much again for coming on the pod. Yeah, thank you so much, Nico. No, super fun to be here. And yeah, really excited to see what everybody can build with these, uh, these new tools and specifically with InWorld. Yeah. And I also want to say a huge thank you to all of our listeners. Um, we will be back, as always, next week with more interviews, more insights, and more analysis. Uh, weird and wonderful world of Web3 and gaming, now AI. We're, we're broadening our scope in terms of what we're covering. Um, but I have to say, I'm absolutely thrilled by all these tools and, and uh, what's becoming possible for game developers and game designers uh, in ways that just wasn't even we couldn't even dream of a few years ago. So until next time, friends, um, feel free to send me questions, guest recommendations, comments. My email is nico at novic.co. And you can also find me on Twitter uh, at Nico the Finn. DMs are always open. Until next time, thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.